So we'll be in Luke chapter 4, if you'll turn there. We're going to start in verse 14. And let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us all, that you are working, that you are here in our midst. For our Lord and Savior Jesus said that if two or more are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst, and we are gathered in your name. We are gathered to seek you, to hear from you, to honor and to glorify you. Thank you for joining us together as the body of Christ and for giving us so many uh, blessings and for this rain that you've provided. We thank you for that. What an answer to prayer, what refreshment, and we pray that it would benefit all, that we would uh, remember the times we prayed for prayer, uh, prayed for rain, and that you have answered. And uh, Lord, thank you that you send the rain on the just and the unjust, that you're faithful and good to all, that you're gracious and kind and compassionate, and we pray that you would be glorified as we read your word today. Help us to hear what you have to say in Jesus' name, amen. Bible's filled with all examples of People who were called to send a message, to anoint kings, to lead, to teach. And uh, John the Baptist was one of those, sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus, um, to preach the kingdom of God, to um, preach repentance, and to seek and to save the lost. And if you remember back in Israel's history, they, they asked for a king, and when God gave them a king, they weren't pleased. A lot of them said, you know, who, who wants Saul to reign over us? And they rejected him. It said they gave him no presence, but, but Saul held his peace. And we see that happening with Jesus, that he came to the children of Israel to seek and to save the lost, but they would reject him. They would refuse him. They would find fault with him. And, uh, but Jesus wasn't hindered from doing the Father's will. He, didn't, he wasn't discouraged because he spoke the truth and people didn't listen to him. He was confident in the purpose that God had called him to do, and he continued to seek and save the lost. So the opposition, the rejection, that didn't hinder him from accomplishing God's purposes in his life. And praise the Lord that that's true for us too, that as he's called you, as he has filled you with the Holy Spirit, and we follow him, he will guide us into truth. He will help us to uh, accomplish the purposes that he has ordained. There is a great harvest awaiting those who do not lose heart, who do not faint, or are weary in well-doing. So keep going, keep trusting, keep following our Savior. Luke 4, starting in verse 14, we pick up our passage. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus had been baptized in water by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit had descended in the form of a dove. God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he was authenticated as the Messiah and he overcame all temptation of Satan while he was 40 days in the wilderness and now he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the Gospel of John, it goes into detail about what happened in between him being tempted and returning to his hometown in Nazareth. It talks about him turning water into wine in Cana, um, that he cleansed the temple, that he met with Nicodemus, and he also met with the Samaritan woman. So there was a lot of ministry. There were miracles that he had done that the people in Nazareth heard about. So now he returns home to people who know him, and 
the, the response to his ministry was overwhelmingly positive at the beginning. People were like, wow, this is amazing. Jesus, have you heard him preach? Have you heard him speak? Have you seen the things he's done? It says he was glorified by all. All people were totally on board with Jesus and excited about him. Uh, but this honeymoon phase of happy fandom would not last. Uh, and there's a big difference between fans and friends, right? Just because you're a fan of someone doesn't mean you're their friend. Fans like a person because they benefit from that person in some way. Like I'm a fan of a certain baseball player or a cricketer because they help my team win. I'm getting something out of them, so I'm their fan. I like that music. I like that band because there's something about it that I like, right? It's kind of about me. And there were a lot of people benefiting from the, the ministry of Jesus, and they were pleased with the things he was saying. He was famous. Maybe they liked his image. I don't know. But the difference between a fan and a friend is a friend is a mutual relationship that involves work, time, personal sacrifice. And Jesus says, I've called you friends. Um, and that friends are those who hear God's word and obey it. That's who God calls his friend. Verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The fame of Jesus went out throughout the, the land. He comes to Nazareth where he's been raised. People are familiar with him. They know his parents. His, his family probably lives there. Um, and though he was a celebrity, and perhaps the paparazzi were on his tail, he goes to the synagogue, as was his custom. And he didn't just go to the synagogue, but he was involved in the service. And the basic order of the service would, would be songs of praise, a reading from the law, a reading from the prophets, and someone would have the opportunity to give a word or to speak on a subject. And it says Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he turns or rolls it to Isaiah 61. Now, the great scroll of Isaiah it, that was discovered in the Qumran caves, that's about 7.5 meters long. So that's a lot of turning, right? So you think the anticipation's building as he's like kind of moving the scroll along. He's turning to the right spot, and he finds it. There's no verses or chapters at that time. He turns to a specific part, and he begins to read. Now, we make a practice of reading through an entire verse or a passage to get the context, but Jesus does something odd in that he stopped mid-sentence, right before an and. There was no punctuation in that manuscript uh, like we have. Um, and if you turn to Isaiah 61, we'll read more of the passage so you can see where he stopped because it is important. So Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1.
thinking as he's churning, people are like, well, he's churning and turning and turning. Finally gets to it. Everyone's just ready to hear. Isaiah 61 verse 1 is where he began. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes and oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus stops in the middle of verse 2 to emphasize the impact of what he's saying, that today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence or in your hearing. And it says, as all eyes were fixed on him, he began to say. So he said some other things, but basically he said, and it seems he wasn't able to quite finish because of the response of the people who heard him, but he began to say, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the spirit of God was upon Jesus Christ to do what? To preach good tidings, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives. And he's talking to people that didn't see themselves as captives. They didn't see themselves as um, really this verse needing to be fulfilled in their hearing. That they needed to be released from prison. And that's the beauty of the gospel, right? That it's for the poor. It's for the broken. It's for the prisoners. It's for the oppressed. It's for those who are least and forgotten in society. The ones you may um, avoid, it targets those people. That's who God is looking to bless and to save. The one who needs saving. The one who needs help. He proclaims the acceptable year of the Lord. And we use acceptable to mean the bare minimum, right? We're like, well, that's acceptable. It's not great. It just, it's, a, it's passable. But in Greek, it's saying not the bare minimum, but delightful, favorable, and good pleasure. Like this is a great thing. This is wonderful. Now, a day of vengeance would come, and Jesus stopped before saying a day of vengeance because that's not the day he was fulfilling. But it was a day of vengeance that would come, but he's talking about an acceptable year of the Lord. A year lasts a lot longer. In comparison to the day, it's much longer. And I love love that Jesus does console. So if we go on, it says he consoles or comforts mourners. He'll exchange joy for mourning and those uh, ashes for beauty. He will do that now. We can look through Scripture and see that is the case today. But as far as a day of vengeance, that's not what he was fulfilling. He was fulfilling, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I am the Messiah, and I'm here to seek and to save you. This is it. This is what Isaiah was talking about, me. Verse 22, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. It says here, everyone's eyes just was fixed on him and they marveled at what he said by the gracious words that he spoke. They stumbled over his identity, who they knew him to be, right? He's the son of Joseph. He's the son of a carpenter. How could he fulfill Scripture today? 
This shows that they did not believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? They saw him as Joseph's son. They didn't see him as the son of God. Surely this newfound fame had gone to his head. And they missed the gospel message because they criticized the messenger. And they thought, who is he to make this claim? Who is he to say, today this scripture is fulfilled? And it's no surprise that gracious words would make people under law marvel. Because for words to be gracious, they need to be spoken with someone of authority in light of an established um, standard. So it's gracious when harshness is deserved, but you are gentle and meek. When, when there could be condemnation, instead showing compassion. Those gracious words, it shocked the people who heard them. And he knew their opposition. He could tell. And he said, you surely will say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And what this basically means is, um, you would not seek the services of a doctor who was in chronic ill health. Because it's like, maybe those cures really aren't very useful. They're not very valuable. Um, what would be the credibility of a marriage counselor who'd been divorced 10 times? It's like, you need to start practicing what you preach, counselor. And if you've been practicing what you preach, what you're preaching doesn't sound good, right? You're taking your own advice. If your advice is leading to 10 broken marriages, I don't want to submit under your teaching. And so if you claim to be a savior, well, who are you saving? Save yourself. Heal yourself, physician. Like, that's the proverb he put back upon them. We heard, Jesus, that you've healed people in Capernaum. Why aren't you healing people here? You've done all these miracles, you know, uh, turned water into wine. Where is that? Why aren't you doing things like that here? Are you too high and mighty for us now? Mark reveals the, the reason behind Jesus' lack or less amount of miracles he did there. It says... It was their unbelief, and because they were offended at him in Mark 6, 5, and 6, it says he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Because they didn't believe in him, there was no opportunity for him to do these great works that he desired to do. And he continued in verse 24. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a widow woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. How quickly the favorable tide turned against Jesus in the synagogue. Jesus says, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Basically, that familiarity breeds contempt. Being close to a person, it can cause us to lose a, a certain amount of respect for them, like a love interest who's like a dainty princess or a handsome prince. When you marry them, you find out that 
they have stinky feet and they leave the toilet seat up. You, you could have never dreamed that they would belch or, you know, leave things around or just be so dim and absent-minded. And you're like, so you don't have maybe the respect that you had them for because you respected them out of ignorance. Or, on the other hand, have you ever met someone so intelligent, so creative, so perfect, they annoyed you? Now, this happened to me. I remember in chemistry class, and there was this one kid that was so bright. And we, we learned, we, we were graded or marked on a curve. And he would always set the curve with a perfect score. And I was like, dude, what? you're making it hard for the rest of us. What is your problem? And he would be up the board examining his answer, what he got wrong and why. And I was just like, Grr. you're like, you have 110% in this class. I don't even know how that's possible. But you're just killing me, man. Jesus was this perfectly righteous man. He never lost his temper. He was always gentle. He was always right. He was always true. And, and he, he never showed a, a point of weakness or an area of hypocrisy. And that got under the skin of the hypocrites. And they're like, "Who? this guy, he is unnerving. I can't stand to be around him. Because he's so perfect. And Jesus now, he begins to talk about how God extended grace to the Gentiles, right? He's speaking gracious words. And now, the Jews who were God's chosen people, they saw the blessings and benefits of God as a divine right because they were given the law, they aimed to keep the law, and so they received blessings from God according to the law. And therefore, Gentiles were withheld blessings, and good things that they desired because they were heathen. They weren't worthy of those things that God prepared for his people. So it's a very much us and them mentality. The rejection of Jesus in Nazareth, it said much more about the people than it said about him because he was right to speak those gracious words. And Jesus talks about the widows. He said there were a lot of widows who were starving in that day, but Elijah was sent to one, the Sidonian widow. There were a lot of lepers in Elisha's day, but only one of them who suffered from the, the terrible, debilitating, and deadly effects of the disease, only one was cleansed, and he was a Syrian. Jesus' hearers were incensed that he would suggest Gentiles had faith the Jews did not express in God. That they received the blessings of God that were withheld from Jewish folks. And they just lost it. They're like, could it be that a Sidonian widow would be saved while the Jewish widows perished? Could, could Naaman the Syrian be healed of his leprosy while these others died? Why didn't Elijah and Elisha help the locals? So they laid hold of Jesus. It says they led him. Jesus didn't fight them. They, they forced him outside the synagogue and they led him, I, I think it was estimated to be kilometers, a, a while, to the edge of the town where there was a steep cliff. And today, outside Nazareth, there's about a 40-foot drop. It's like 12 meters, a sheer drop onto rocks where they believe it may have happened. 
But those who desired a miracle from Jesus, they received one in an unexpected way. Because as they lead him out, he willingly walks with them. They get to the edge, and it just says, he passed through them and went his way. So they were unable to lay hands on him, unable to execute him. And he's not running away or disappearing, suddenly just not there. Like, where is he? He, he was there, but he just walked through the middle of them. And he didn't do what Satan had tempted him to do before. Like, throw yourself down, let the angels lift you up, and then they'll believe in you. He didn't do that. He passed through them without a word. Now, this is powerful. Because remember what Elijah did when King Ahab sent some people out to arrest him? He says, if I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your 50. And it did twice. When Elisha, the prophet, was mocked for his baldness, being a prophet of God, what did he do? He cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two bears came out of the woods and mauled them. Jesus had every right to say ungracious words to them, to curse them. He said nothing. He just walked through them and went on his way. Because he came to save lives, not to destroy them. Those men of God were justified by him because God exercised power through them, right? I mean, if you could call fire down from heaven all you want, but if God answers with fire from heaven, who can speak against it? But Jesus, he came for this purpose, to seek and save the lost, to go to the broken, to go to those in bondage, to bigotry and to sin and hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Those are the people he came to save. Verse 31, Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Jesus leaves Nazareth after that attempt to execute him, and he goes to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, which became his home base of ministry. It was where Simon Peter lived. And it seems he was much better received in Capernaum because they didn't throw him out the first day he preached there or tried to throw him off a cliff. They, he preached there regularly, and they were astonished. They were amazed because of his um, authority. The way that he taught the Scriptures was so different than they were used to hearing. It was common in Jewish synagogues for a layman, so someone who wasn't a priest or a Levite, to give a message or to uh, share a word. And I was looking uh, online, and I found a really cool article on My Jewish Learning that talks about, gives people, so laymen, modern day, if you're asked to do this in a synagogue, the right way to approach it. And I think it's really applicable. It says this, Try not to get carried away by your conclusions, clever though they may be. You will generally be better served if you are modest about your claims. Ours is a very long and complex tradition, and there are very few propositions that can be stated flat out without lots of qualifications. Any sentence that starts by saying, Judaism teaches that, probably ought to make your listeners a little nervous. It is less pretentious and more honest to note that Rabbi X teaches that, or it is possible to interpret the text in the following manner. Interesting, huh? That's the right way to approach it, the honest way, the less pretentious way. And so the learned rabbis and scribes and doc, you know, scholars with doctorates, they showed their mastery of Scripture by quoting from revered ancient sources. Their rabbi, their teacher, because they all started knowing nothing, right? They were ignorant, 
And so it was fitting that they would follow a particular rabbi or school of thought. So these learned scholars, they were obliged to follow established doctrines and traditions and interpretations. Jesus did not teach like that. He did not reference Rabbi X. He spoke like the author without qualifications. He was constantly saying things flat out without qualification. And people were like, whoa, how can he say that? Like, we know what the ancients have said. We know what the mystics have said about that. And how can he just, on his own authority, make that claim? That he's not even saying, this is my claim. He's just saying it how it is. The irony is, Jesus taught in Capernaum he did many miracles there that amazed the people, but it didn't mean that they repented or they trusted in him. Jesus later would speak against Capernaum, and he said, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the things you've seen, they would have repented in dust and ashes. So just because they were astonished at his doctrine, just because he worked many mighty works there, didn't mean they were changed, and that's what God wants. Not just to be amazed by an interpretation, but to be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit when we repent and apply his word to our lives. Verse 33. Now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke amongst themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. This is the first mention of an unclean spirit or demon in Luke, and it occurred in a synagogue. It's a bit ironic, right? Um... When God created the world, he created angels to be ministering spirits, Satan being one of them, but there was found pride and sin in him. And when he fell, there were other angels that remained subordinate to Satan and chose to oppose God, to labor to, to uh, thwart his plans, to attack God's people, the people that he loves. And so demons, they're beyond repentance. The blood of Jesus, it cleanses human beings, but there's no salvation for them. And knowing the word of God, they recognize the threats that they are under and the power that God has over all things. So this, these are not, a demon is not a disembodied spirit of a person, um, but an unclean spirit in contrast to an angel who is uh, reverent towards God, doing the will of God. They're quite the opposite yet under God's power. So demon possession or demonic activity, it should not be relegated to antiquity, superstition, a more ignorant age. It's not to be com confused with a physical malady or a medical condition like schizophrenia or mental illness or epilepsy. Um, they're two different things. One's a physical, medically treatable condition. This is a spiritual one. And we see in the scripture and in, in modern day that demonic possession, it's more prevalent in the places where the word of God and the gospel have not made the same inroads. Um, demons tremble at even the name of Jesus Christ. They don't want to be around him. 
Um, it's kind of like rats or roaches. They prefer the darkness, the cover of night. They don't want to be exposed in the light. They don't want to be driven from their place. So they will stay uh, hidden and subversive if they can. So when, when a person is possessed, uh, their body and will, they're subject to the spirit that can speak through them and a voice foreign to their own without their knowledge. And uh, if it's disturbing that people could be so influenced by evil, uh, all the more reason to proclaim and follow our Savior Jesus Christ before whom all uh, demons tremble. In the spirit, it cries out, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's the terms us and we, part of that network um, of evil spirits, unclean spirits who are afraid of Jesus because they know who he is. They know the power that he possesses over them and their inability to save themselves from him and blurts out, you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, be quiet. He did not need the aid of demons to tell him who he was or to inform other people of who he was. All he had to do was silence the demon and send it out. And people go, wow, he was preaching with authority. And now with authority, all he has to do is speak to the demon and it leaves. There was no discussion. There was no confusion about what had happened. The people recognized it. So if that happened here... I probably, we'd probably be discussing amongst each other, like, what was that? Did you, have you ever seen anything like that before? And they're kind of like, whoa, weird. Like, oh, it was kind of unnerving. You know, my hair was standing up and like, that just didn't sound like her or whatever. Like, we would be having discussion. They're not having that discussion because they recognize it. They knew what it was. And uh, we see that with King Saul. When, it, when an sp- evil spirit sent by God to chasten him to repentance, people said, it's an evil spirit sent from God to chasten you. Hey, let's get someone to play music to calm you and to soothe you instead of repenting and following God. So Jesus is not, you know, throwing holy water or waving a crucifix, which would have been really odd. Um, You know, in the movies or something, uh, using herbs or uh, charms or amulets or something to invoke a name to drive it out. He just said, be quiet and come out. That was it. He just appealed to his own authority and and the demon obeyed. His authority was not just in teaching, but in the spiritual realm too. And one purpose behind the miracles Jesus did was to authenticate his authority and the truth of what he said. Verse 38, Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. When the sun was setting, all those who who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ." Jesus went from synagogue to Simon Peter's house. It's about a stone's throw away. You can see that in Capernaum today, where they believe his house was, um, in relation to the white synagogue, which is still standing, which I think they say is fourth century. So Simon's wife's mother shows us he was married. This was his mother-in-law. She was sick, had a very high fever, and they asked, what can you do? And it says he stood over her, he rebuked the fever, 
And the fever left her just like the demon had left the man. So he has power over the spiritual realm. He has power over all disease and illness. Normally, words have no impact on fevers. Just saying. And, and likely, we would not think to rebuke a fever. Like, fever, I rebuke you. Or, be rebuked, fever. Like, it's just, it's foreign to my, con- uh, it's like, uh, have you taken Panadol? Like, that would be the way I would talk. Like, to pray for healing, but, but there is, like, it's who am I to speak against a fever as if it's a thing? But Jesus did. He rebuked the fever. The fever left. She immediately rises, and she helps those uh, who came. So she served Jesus and those in her home. There was no need for recovery. I mean, if you're laid, laid out with a, a severe fever, you'll be weakened. But there's no sign of weakness here. And uh, she was made whole and able to serve. And Spurgeon had a good observation. He says, He who healed her of the fever did not need her to minister to him. He who had power to heal diseases had certainly power to subsist without human ministry. But it shows when she served him that he's worthy to be served. He's worthy to be honored. And having received healing from Jesus, she serves others. And what a good picture for us that is. We who have been made whole through Christ, that we, we serve him, but we also serve others because of the blessing he has been to us. He went to the synagogue likely on the Sabbath day. The setting sun in verse 40 it marked the end of the Sabbath restrictions that were traditional. You were only allowed to walk so far. So anybody who had people that were sick after seeing what Jesus did in the synagogue, after seeing what he did in Peter's house, they went home and they gathered up all their sick folks or those they knew who uh, were ill and brought them to Christ. It's evident when Jesus Uh, stood over and rebuked the fever. He didn't need to touch people who were sick, but here it says he laid hands on all of them and healed them. And to me, that shows great boldness and fearlessness, that he was not concerned at all that he would catch anything. I mean, uh, I wouldn't want to touch a leper, um, someone who has coronavirus. I wouldn't want to be just like, like, hey, laying my hands all over them without gloves or something. Um, But Jesus had authority over all. He wasn't at all concerned about that because he was so beyond any human being uh, that we could possibly imagine. People possessed by demons as well, he rebuked and muzzled them, commanding them to depart. Um, And just as a side note, there's no biblical evidence that a Christian who has been a purchased possession of God can be possessed by a demon, or that they must be incrementally um, discovered and, and ferreted out as far as um, every time we see Jesus healing people, we see him casting out demons, it's, uh, it's complete, it's thorough. Now, I realize that we're not Christ, but the same authority he has, he gives to his own, that we can trust that when he has set us free, we are free indeed. And there's not more things for us to uncover about our past or our secret inner life that uh, we need to do something with for him to do a complete healing work. There are times in the scriptures we see Satan permitted to trouble God's people, like in the situation with Job. 
Um, Job was a righteous man, attacked by Satan. In Luke 13, there's a woman we'll read about who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years who was not able to stand up straight. Uh, So there can be a crossover between a physical manifestation of a spiritual issue. Uh, And Jesus also, tempted by Satan, betrayed by Judas after um, Satan entered into him. But the takeaway is for me that salvation, deliverance, healing, it comes from Jesus. There's no other way to have freedom and to be free of oppression, be free from bondage, to be free uh, from the slavery of sin or demonic forces. That's in Jesus alone. And it's, it's available to every single person. Just like he laid his hands on everyone, if you are bound, if you are imprisoned, if you are oppressed, there is freedom for you in Jesus Christ right now. Praise the Lord. If you want to be healed, if you'll be made whole, Jesus is the only way. Verse 42, now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. If we only read the Luke account, it may give us the impression that he just healed people throughout the whole night or that he just needed some downtime or me time or something. But Mark, it gives us some specifics. It says in Mark 135, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. So that's what Jesus was doing when he got up so early in the morning, before the sun rose, a deserted place to pray. During the life of Christ, we'll see he placed a very high priority on communion with the Father, praying, No matter how busy his days were, no matter how much ministering he was doing, um, he spent a lot of time in solitary prayer. And you think, but he's God, and he can pray wherever he is at all times. Yes, but there is a time for us as followers of Christ to lay aside our normal routine or something we could, we could really be doing something else. We could be sleeping, but instead of sleeping, we're praying. We could be... um, you know, playing a game or, or pursuing our hobby. But instead, we're praying. So he came aside from what a lot of people were doing because they were sleeping at night or early in the morning, but he was praying. He was seeking God. Just like a lot of people go to the gym early, right? It's dark and they're 4 o'clock. Over here, we have a gym where there's people who ride bicycles and jog. And when I come in early, they're here. There's a bunch of them running around getting fit, Prayer is the means of having spiritual fitness to do the work of the ministry. It's an important part of our walk, and Jesus exhibited that. And yeah, by the grace of God, we can enter into his presence anytime, anywhere. But it's good to get alone for the purpose of spending time hearing from the Lord, speaking to the Lord, casting our cares on him, to express our praise and our thanksgiving, to tell him that we love him. And really, by praying, it shows him that we love him. And as Jesus is seeking the Lord in prayer, people are looking for him. They found him uh, and tried to keep him from leaving. They say, hey, with your teaching, with the healing, with the deliverance, man, you're a handy guy to have around. We, We just want you to hang out here. Like, everyone's looking for you, Jesus. You're so popular and you're so needed. But he's like, no, 
I need to do what my father's told me to do. I need to preach the gospel to all these other cities too. So the appreciation of his fans didn't keep him from his purpose, where he says, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities because for this purpose I have been sent. And I wonder, I wonder if they were disappointed. They go, oh, well, I guess we'll see you when you make it around here again. Or if there were some people who followed him. said, man, wherever you go, that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to just hang with you. You know, it may be time for fishing, but this is Jesus. This is the Christ. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, the main emphasis in Jesus' ministry was on preaching, not healing. Though he had compassion on people, his healing ministry was usually to authenticate what he was saying. And there were a lot of people willing to receive benefits from Christ, but weren't interested to follow him. And I was thinking, if Jesus was walking around the suburbs of Sydney today, I wonder if we would take leave or if we'd quit our job to follow him, like physically follow him from place to place. Or, or if we'd have been content to let a, a few weeks or a few months pass before we saw him again. W- would there be in us that, like, like I've got to be with Jesus. I need to be with him. He, he's going to say something. He's going to do something. He is going to just be amazing. And, and I don't want to miss out, not just seeing something cool, but being with him. And there's a big difference between being a fan and a follower. The fans asked Jesus to stay, but the followers went wherever Jesus did. And as followers of Christ, we are blessed to be able to follow him wherever we are. And he's given us families, so are we leading them to follow Christ? He's given us careers. Are we following the leading of Christ to honor God in our work and with our fellow Uh, employees. He's made us part of the body, his church. So are we loving one another as he loves us? Are we serving one another like the woman who was healed of her fever? And he's given us opportunities to minister. Do we withdraw from others to seek time in prayer or to pray with him together, to him together? And he's spoken us to his word. Are we seeking to make disciples of him? So in in every area of life, we have opportunities, don't we, to follow Jesus in that and to bring people to Jesus. That's what everyone else did. They they brought people to Jesus. And then it's like, but are you going to follow Jesus? God doesn't need groupies, but he welcomes friends. Are we seeking to make disciples of Christ? I love what Jesus says in John 14, 12. We know that no servant is greater than his master. But he says this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to my Father. So we have the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth, who empowers us to obey and do God's will. And may God's will be done through us in Jesus' name as we follow him. Don't we have just an awesome Savior who's worthy to be followed, who's worthy to be praised, and that we would bring others to him because we believe he can help. He can actually change them. He can transform them forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good and faithful, that you sent Jesus to be our Savior. And Lord, uh, 
in the areas of my life where I'm just a fan, I pray you'd make me a follower, that I would follow after you, that I would seek your face, that um, I would choose to pray when I could be doing something else. Lord, I pray you'd show each of us how we can um, receive those gracious words and walk in light of them, that we would give grace to others, that we would walk in the Spirit as Jesus did, where he wasn't threatening, he wasn't raising his voice and shouting at those who opposed him, but he just passed through them and went his way. Lord, help us to go your way. Help us to walk in your ways, in the way that pleases you and glorifies and honors your holy name. And we thank you for Christ, that he lives and that he has the power to change lives and to to free the captives and to set um, those prisoners free. Those who mourn, those who are um, oppressed, even by Satan, you are able to free and deliver. So Lord, we come to you believing. Please increase our faith. Cause us to follow you and to rejoice, to thank you, to be grateful now and always for the good things you've done and for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen.